0: to that as well. So question number one for today, what is the significance of your spouse in heaven? I think part three of our series uh, we talked about, or part two actually was questions about eternity. And this question actually got texted in that day. What's the significance of your spouse in heaven? In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus actually gets a question about what marriage looks like in heaven. So let's read that. That'll give us a, a basis to begin with. It says that same day, the Sadducees, uh, who are a group of religious leaders who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So the Sadducees were the religious leaders in ancient Israel, who did not believe in an afterlife. They believed that we were supposed to be good people and moral people. They believed in God, but they believed that when you die, that's it, it's done. So they came to Jesus with a question. Verse 24 says, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So, so the law of Israel, which was handed down through a man named Moses, who we'll talk about a little bit more later, uh, God's word said that, that if I were to die, it would be my brother's job to, to marry Melody uh, if he was single. And so thank God I'm not gonna die anytime soon because that would be a disaster. Uh, but that was the way uh, things were laid out. Actually, uh, that wouldn't happen. But anyway, uh, that's, that was the rules in that point in time. Uh, so verse 25, they give a, a hypothetical situation. It says, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second. And then the third brother, right on down to the seventh. So this woman is bad luck. Uh, Don't marry her. Uh, It's bad news. Seven husbands married, seven husbands dead. I think there's a common denominator here. Uh, 27, finally the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. Good question, right? If there is marriage in heaven, then who are you going to be married to if you've had multiple spouses on earth how does that work how does it look verse 29 jesus replied he says you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of god anybody ever been in error because you did not know the scriptures or the power of god it's really easy for us to look down on the sadducees in this moment but we have all been there haven't we been in error many times not knowing exactly what the word of god says and that's what we want to confront today we want to help to make sure we do know what the word says Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, when he says we'll be like angels in heaven, he's not saying you become an angel when you die. What he's saying is angels don't get married and they are not married. And in the same way that angels are not married in eternity, we will not be married in eternity. Verse 31, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. What is he saying here? He's saying the Israelites, they held on to this phrase. This was what God said to them time and time and time again. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's confronting to the Sadducees directly, they're still alive. There is a resurrection. There is an afterlife. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. Uh, And so he confronts that head on. But our question pertains more to marriage. So Bible is very clear. You will not be married In eternity, you'll not be married in heaven. In fact, we talked about in our message about eternity that we'll actually spend most of our time here on earth, which will be the new earth rather than the new heaven, but there'll be some time spent both. But at that point in time, we'll not be married. Now, what does that look like and how does that work? I don't know. This is where I can be very real with you and very honest, the Bible does not say. Um, Here's what I can tell you. First Corinthians 13 says this. It's the famous love chapter, Uh, but after it talks specifically about the characteristics of love. It says this, starting in verse eight, it says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So he, in chapter 12, one chapter before, the apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of of a word of knowledge, these different prophetic giftings. He says, one day you won't need any of these. Uh, He says, verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. What is he saying? He's saying there's going to be a day in eternity where we don't know in part, we know it all. All knowledge is going to be revealed to us at that point in time. We're going to have access to, to, to everything. We're not gonna need prophecy. We're not gonna need tongues because God, there's not gonna be anything hidden from us. There's not gonna be anything that has not yet been revealed. So we won't need those things in eternity. We need them now to access God's revelation, but we won't need them then. So he says, we know in part, but when completeness comes, we'll, we'll have access to all that knowledge. So what is my reason for bringing this up? I don't know what it's gonna look like that we're not married in heaven, but I do know this. You're gonna know who you were married to. You're going to still There's absolutely still going to be a bond there. There's going to be shared memories there There's going to be a shared life there Um, I don't know exactly how it will work I don't know if we will still live together in heaven and I don't I don't know uh, I wish I could tell you I have my opinions and my thoughts on it But I the bible really doesn't say much at all what the bible does say is we won't be married in eternity Um, and that one day we'll know in full here's what I also know Everything about eternity Is better than what is now so even though it's hard for us to wrap our brain around something being better, for some of us, for some of you, are like, praise God, I'm not married in eternity. Like, you're like, I can get behind that. For for others, that, that seems like a, a discouraging thing. Um, I know this. Eternity is going to be better than today. Everything that God has for us in the next life is better than what he has for us in this life. So I can't tell you how it's better. I can't tell you how it looks or how it feels or how it sounds. But I do know this. It will absolutely be better. So there will be a significance of your spouse. You will know who that was. You will have shared memories. You will have a shared history. Um, There will definitely be significance there, but it will not be the same significance that we have here on earth. Second question. I have a few big things I'm going through. This was actually texted in at the end of service last week, and we hit on it very quickly, but I said, you know what, let's, let's, bump this to our family message because it's going to be more in depth to be able to to really dig into it. I have a few big things I'm going through and my family pretended to support me and my decisions for years. Now that the time is drawing near, they're being unsupportive and I don't know what to do. I've cried several times because all I want is the love and support of my family. If I'm being honest, God placed this in my heart. I've prayed about it for years and now I don't know what to do. Is this God's way of telling me not to do this or is this just an obstacle I have to get over. Uh, I actually know who this individual is. They came up to me after service and told me, hey, this is my question. And and so I have a little bit more information than is even contained here. What I can tell you is this, this is an individual who is under 18 living in their parents' home. And so that phrases the context of this answer a little bit. Um, What I also know is that this individual... Whatever this decision is, and I won't get into that uh, fr- from the pulpit. But whatever this decision is, this individual has support from their parents, uh, but not the extended family. So it's grandma, it's aunts, cousins that have an issue with this situation. So now, with that context, let's unpack this a little bit. Um, obviously, the Bible doesn't speak clearly about what this girl should do. It doesn't say you should handle, you should do this or not do this uh, to this specific situation. We all have specific situations that the Bible's not necessarily, not gonna say work at this job rather than that job, right? There's always gonna be times where where the Bible does not speak clearly and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Um, But I wanna give some principles here from scripture that will help all of us and especially young people it's mother's day so young people i'm going to speak to you a little bit about how to make those decisions when when you are living in mom and dad's house what is your obligation to them how does this work uh while you're still under their care so uh four little principles here that, that can help make good decisions number one obey your parents i got an amen from a parent thought there'd be a few more i'll try it again number one obey your parents a little bit better, a little bit better. Uh, even a student chiming in sarcastically, awesome. Uh, just playing with you. Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. It's the right thing to do to obey your parents. Um, even if you think this is something God is telling you to do, if mom and dad say no and you're living in their house, the answer is no. The only exception to this is when it is clear, black and white, no question in scripture, you need to do this. So in other words, um, the only time it's okay to disobey your parents is if you want to read your Bible and mom and dad ban you from reading your Bible. In that instance, you can smuggle a Bible into your home and a flashlight under your sheets and read your Bible after mom and dad go to sleep. Okay, like that is black and white. The right thing to do is to have a relationship with God. Uh, But not just because, well, I feel like God is telling me to do this. If you feel like God is telling you to do something and mom and dad say no, mom and dad are the authority in your life. Why? Because we do have that in black and white. See, scripture always trumps our, our feeling of what God is saying. And the Bible says, children, obey your parents. So if in this case that this this family that wasn't supporting this decision, if this was a parent, then the answer would be absolutely not, don't do it. Um, And that's not the case here. So we're gonna move on beyond this first principle. Second principle, no matter what season of life you are in, whether you are a kid living in your parents' house or, or older at any season of life, this principle applies. Number two, honor your parents. See, honor and obedience is not the same thing. Obedience is about action. Honor is about attitude. Now, you are an adult, most of you in this room, and you don't live in mom and dad's house. You are not obligated by scripture to obey your parents anymore. You've stepped up and you've become a spouse. You've started to raise a family. You're gonna have to make those decisions for yourself. You're not obligated to do whatever mom tells you to do. In fact, in many situations, you're probably gonna cause some friction in your marriage if you let mom run your life. Uh, So you're gonna have to make some decisions outside of what your parents tell you to do. But honoring your parents applies no matter what stage of life we're in. Consider this. We all know very famously the 10 commandments. Commandment number five is to honor your father and your mother. In fact, we find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It says, like I said, honor your father and mother. Those commandments were not primarily given to children. They were given to all of us. But if you read through the list of commandments, the context here is primarily God speaking to adults. And even in speaking to adults, he says to honor your father and your mother. He doesn't say commandment five, obey your father and mother, because that only applies for those who are living in mom and dad's house. But for everybody, if mom and dad are still alive, we are obligated by scripture to approach them with an attitude of honor. In other words, we we listen to their feedback, we listen to what we ha- they have to say. Now there's time to set boundaries and say, look, I know where you guys stand on this and I appreciate your feedback and I'm glad that you've been willing to share this. We're gonna go in a different direction, mom and dad. We're, we're gonna do something different and-, and we believe that this is where God is leading us, so thank you. It's definitely okay to set boundaries with your, with your parents, but the attitude behind that has to be an attitude of honor. Uh, for, for all of us, whether young or old, there's got to be an attitude of honor. Whether we agree or, or follow mom and dad's directions or God's leading us in a different direction, we always need to posture with an attitude of honor. Amen? It's Mother's Day. Amen? And we can get behind this, right? Mom should get behind this for sure. Uh, number three, uh, seek wise counsel one of the the greatest recommendations I can give to any young person in this room, and really anybody in this room, is never make major life decisions, and having spoken with this individual, I know it's a major life decision. Never make major life decisions on your own. I'm talking about where to go to college, who to marry, like whether to adopt a child, like all those things. Yes, we need to hear from God for ourselves. Yes, we need to pray these things through, but you need to have some people around you that you can go to and and run things through. What do you think about this person? Uh, You know what? I think that that person is really bad for you, and here's why. And you need to be able to hear what that, that person has to say. We all have blind spots. That's why God didn't design for us to do life alone. We all have things that we don't see, and sometimes God's going to place some authority in our lives, some counsel in our lives, some people who are older and wiser and more mature. So when I say seek wise counsel, what that doesn't mean is text your three best friends. Uh, What do you think about this? Like, that's probably not wise counsel. Uh, If it involves texting, it's almost not going to be wise counsel. Let's just put that out there. Um, Sit down face to face. Explain what you're wrestling with. Here's what I feel like God is speaking to me. Have I missed it? Am I missing something here, um, and have those conversations, but don't make my major life decisions by yourself. Uh, before Melody and I got married, both of us had had spiritual leaders in our life, mature, people further along, older than us, people who were married, people who were further down the road, who we sat down with and said, "Hey, we feel like God's leading us to this point. What are, what are we missing?" Are are we missing something here? Is there something we don't know? Is there something we don't see? And they were able to give us some great advice, some great wisdom to protect ourselves from from making mistakes, but also to propel us toward what clearly was God's leading to to take that step and to get married. So uh, absolutely advise, seek wise counsel. Uh, And then I only put this last one, number four, because this person says that they're already doing this in the question, Uh, but ultimately number four, seek God's will. Seek God's will. Don't just do what makes you happy. Uh, one mistake that, that people make a lot of times, and it's a well-intended mistake, but like when, when kids are graduating from high school, Christians will tell them this, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart lies, okay? Every, every one of us, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Don't follow your heart. Follow God's will. And sometimes God's will, he's going to place desires in our heart and it'll line up. And that's an awesome moment. But sometimes my heart doesn't want what God's heart wants. And I need to submit my will to his will. So don't just do what makes you happy. Don't just do what feels right. Seek God's will. God, is this what you have for me? God, is this your best for my life? Is this the right time for this? Seek his will. Uh, seek the the confidence that he has for you. And if you don't get that confidence right now, there's nothing wrong with pushing pause and saying, I'm gonna wait to make a decision on this. Much better to to make the decision a little bit later than you would have wanted and know that God's behind it than to just jump into something because you created a false deadline or because you wanted something today and then realize down the line, man, that was a bad mistake. So those are the four pieces of advice I would give to young people. Thank you for that, amen, Miss Sherry. I received that. Jesus' name. Uh, So how do do we seek God's will? Well, that's where you get to come back next week for questions about prayer and seeking God's will. Because we don't have time to unpack all that with everything else we have going on today. Um, let, Let me say this real quick. You don't have an obligation to obey your extended family. You don't have a scriptural obligation to obey grandma. Or to obey Auntie. It's great when those things line up. Uh, but and, and those people can be people in your life who have wise counsel for you. You probably know right now if grandma's got wise counsel or not. There's some incredibly wise grandmothers, and there are some grandmothers who need a little help. Um, and, and so, if you've got a great grandmother, if you've got a praying grandma, if you've got a grandma that, that's got a walk with God that you can model after and aspire for, absolutely let her speak into your life. If, Grandma's out smoking crack. I love you, Grandma. I'm praying for you, but I'm not going to base my life on, on what you want, right? Um, I'm ex- obviously, most grandmas aren't smoking crack, uh, but there are some who do. Uh, and you don't, You're not obligated to, to what your extended family wants. So pray that thing through. Seek God's will. Uh, get some wise counsel, and, and you will make the right decision. Number three, does the Bible speak— About interracial relationships. I have a family member that says if this was meant to be we would all be one color. Read Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel. This is a very controversial subject. Uh, People who are against interracial relationships almost always use the Bible to justify their opposition. Uh, Here, this person references Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and how God confused their language and caused them to to spread out from one another. And as they spread out from one another, we see genetically that people developed different races and different colors and different ethnicities and different languages and all these things. Um, There's another or a few other places that people often go. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4 is another common example. In Deuteronomy, it says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. So he's speaking to the Israelites who are getting ready to go into the promised land. They've come out of Egypt and out of slavery and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. It says uh, many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Say that seven times fast seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord, your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Then verse three says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So here, it seems, says very clearly to the Israelites, not intermarry and so some would say that's that's for us white people should not marry hispanics and african-americans should not marry asians and there should be no mingling of races in relationships on the other hand people will argue for interrelation interracial relationships from scripture uh one very common argument is to go to the genealogy of jesus Jesus' his genealogy is passed down to us, and in his genealogy, we discover there are a couple women who are mentioned, and that's significant because in that culture, they only did genealogies through men, uh, but they actually mention a, a couple of women in his genealogy. One of those women is Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was also a prostitute. Jesus was descended from a prostitute. That might blow your theology up a little bit. Uh, the grace of God is powerful. Man, God, nobody is too far to be used by God. Nobody's messed up too badly for God to bring them into his family and to use them. She was from another ethnicity, from another nation, not only Rahab, but Ruth, who had come from uh, the Midianites, uh, or the Moabites, excuse me. And, And so she is referenced as well. She was the great, great, great grandmother of David, one of the greatest kings of Israel in the line of Jesus. So we see these interracial relationships actually that Jesus himself is descended from. And obviously if God did not want interracial relationships, he probably could have just left that part out of scripture. Didn't have to mention that the women were there, but he inspired the the, the gospel writers to include it. Another argument for interracial relationships is found in Numbers chapter 13. And I think this is the most important passage on the subject. In Numbers chapter 13, uh, Moses is confronted by his brother and his sister miriam and aaron and in verse one it says miriam and aaron began to talk about moses because of his cushite wife for he had married a cushite we're going to come back to that word cushite in a minute has the lord only spoken through moses they asked hasn't he also spoken through us and the lord heard this and then we got to include verse three just for comedic effect uh who wrote the book of numbers anybody know Moses wrote the book of Numbers, right? Okay, so just remember that as you read verse 3. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. One of the best verses in Scripture. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to let everybody know he was the most humble dude out there. I love it. Uh, So we have Moses on one hand, who's married a Cushite, and we have his brother Aaron, his sister, Miriam who think that there's something wrong with that. They're, they're gossiping about him, basically. They're grumbling behind his back that, man, he, he had stepped out. He didn't marry a Jew. He didn't marry a Hebrew. He married a Cushite. You can just imagine maybe some hushed tones in the conversation, if it's anything like the modern-day South, how you kind of lower your voice. She likes black guys, right? Like, isn't that how it works out? That's, how, that's what it looks like in modern-day America anyway. We don't know if that's how it worked back then, but that's how it works now, so what does God do? How does God respond to this? Well, God comes to Moses' defense extremely strongly, like clearly, boldly, directly. Um, he, he backs Moses up over the next few verses. You can read it through your, for yourself in Numbers 13. But then look at the final result in verse 10. It says, when the cloud lifted, the cloud of, of God's presence, lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous, It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. Now, the good news is this only lasted for a week. God healed her and delivered her. But God made a bold statement. He didn't just side with it's okay, we're gonna let Moses do this. He made this decision before he was really following me, and we're gonna. He said, You are not gonna talk bad about the man of God because he married somebody of a different race. Well, how do we know she was of a different race? Let me make sure we clear that up very quickly as well. Jeremiah chapter 13, 23. The same word for Cushite that appears in Numbers 13 appears in Jeremiah. In verse 23, it says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or a leopard spots. Neither can you do good, who are accustomed to doing evil. The same Hebrew word for Cushite is is what's translated as Ethiopian here. The Hebrew word is Cushi, K U W S H I Y, and that word Cushi. It is translated in the old testament it appears 21 times 30, 13 times it's translated as ethiopian eight times it's translated as cushite because cushite was the term that they used back then you can see the relation between Cushite and, and cushy that they're they're very similar words um, it's what we would know in modern english as an ethiopian uh and so god points to this is god speaking he says can an ethiopian change their skin in other words he Everybody around the Israelites had kind of the same skin tone. They were, they were this tan, olive skin Arab people. Uh, and the, the closest people that they knew that they could relate to who had a different skin color than them was the Ethiopians. And God says, they, they can't change their skin color. You can't change your skin color. I can't change my skin color. We're born with our skin the way that it is. A leopard can't change their spots. And so we see very, very strongly that a Kushite is an Ethiopian. It's a person of a much darker skin tone, an Arab, and God comes decisively to Moses' defense. When God's word speaks clearly, we're going to speak clearly. And I am 100% convinced that the truth of the the fullness of Scripture is God doesn't just tolerate interracial relationships. God supports interracial relationships. He defended Moses. He didn't just say it's okay. He makes mistakes, and we're going to overlook it. He came to Moses' defense when they started gossiping about him. So I'm just gonna say this very clearly and very boldly here at City Church. If you got a problem with people of other races, man, we've all got sin and we've all got stuff to work on, but you need to start working on that one pretty quick because we are gonna be people who believe in people. We're gonna be people who celebrate people. We're gonna be people who love people. If you've got a problem with people who who date outside their race or marry outside their race, I'm just gonna tell you right now, God's got a problem with your heart, not with theirs. It's just where it's at. It's what the Bible says. God came to Moses' defense, and he judged Miriam and Aaron. He did not come to Miriam and Aaron's defense and judge Moses. And and so I believe that that the church, especially in the south, has missed this pretty badly for a long time. And that God's got something better for us. And so we've made this statement multiple times here, and we're going to make it many more times. We want to be a church where people of interracial relationships feel comfortable. And if that means that we run off some people who have issues with that, I'm good with that. Because I'm going to be on God's side. I want to be where God's heart is. And God's heart on this area is very clear. And and so if that makes you uncomfortable, if if you've got man, well, that's not how I was raised. Man, we were all raised with some junk. I could tell you a lot of stuff I was raised with that was wrong. Right? It's not about how I was raised. It's about what does God think. And when God's word speaks clearly, we'll speak clearly. And in this area, he speaks clearly. We're going to support interracial relationships. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Now, let let me say this as well. If you are a young person living in mom and dad's house and mom and dad say, no, you can't date this person because of their color, then you can't date that person because of their color. Once again, when you live in their house, you obey their rules. And if, just because it's a good thing and God supports it doesn't mean while you live in mom and dad's house, you rebel against them and say, well, God says I can do it. So I'm going to do whatever I want. God says, obey your parents. And so while you're living in mom and dad's house, that's off limits. Now, when you get out of the house, we're going to have your back. We're going to support you. We'll, we'll marry you. If, and when they get to that point, after you've gone through marriage premarital counseling, like we'll have your back. But while you're in mom and dad's house, you obey mom and dad's rules. That's just the way that God's word works. So final question for us today before we wrap up our our message. How do I cope with divorce in my family? Maybe the question of of today that's gonna relate to more people in this room than any. What a difficult but massively important question in our day and age. Uh, First of all, I should tell you this. I am not a child of divorce. I'm very blessed to have both parents still together still in my life. Um, My family is not without the stain of divorce. My dad was married once before he married my mom. He had two kids in his first marriage, my older brother, John, and my older sister, Tracy. Uh, They're 12 and 10 years older than me. And so I've seen firsthand the effect of their divorce on my brother and sister. I've seen the pain that they've felt. I've seen the, the difficulty that they've had. In fact, today they're in their mid and late 40s. And there's still a very deep effect on them from what happened when they were nine months and two years old. It has carried out for 40 some years the impact of divorce on their life. So how do you cope with divorce? And is there hope? I don't pretend to have all the answers on this question, but I can at least give you a few tips if you were a young person going through this. And I, I texted this person back and I asked him specifically, are you going through divorce or have you gone through divorce? Or are you asking this about your parents? And they said, is my parents' divorce? So I'm gonna answer it through, through that perspective. The answer would be a little different if, for, for those going through divorce who have been through divorce. But for children of divorce, here's what I would say. Number one, realize you are not alone. Divorce is everywhere in our culture. Let me give you a few statistics. Maybe you're aware of these, maybe you're not. But currently in America, 50% of all children born to married parents at current trends will experience a divorce before they're 18 years old, 50%. Almost half of those who experience one divorce will experience another. One of their parents will be remarried and divorced. Um, We have had, in, in our youth ministry here, we had one young man who had 13 divorces between his two parents. We had a young girl who's had seven between her two parents. This is a big deal. This is a very difficult thing for young people to walk through. One out of 10 children of divorce experience three or more parental marriage breakups. 10% of kids of divorce see their parents divorced three times. 40% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers. And 40.7% of all births in 2012 were out of wedlock. So almost half are born out of wedlock, and then of the 60% that are born in wedlock, half of them will experience divorce, which means only about 30% of kids today will make it to 18 years old with their parents still married. The vast majority of people, their parents are not together. That's a terrible, terrible statement about our society. But it is good news if you're in that boat, because if you go back 50, 60, 70 years when this was not the case, children of divorce bore a stigma in society. You were looked down as less than, you were looked down as this. there was something wrong with you. That's not the case anymore because nobody's got both parents. It's normal. Uh, and so the good news is you're not alone. The good news is we, we, we have a society that, that is accepting of those kids and embraces those kids. And that is a good thing. Because number two, if you're a child of divorce, don't blame yourself. Satan is the father of lies. And I don't know how this one sticks so well. I've never been through divorce with my parents. I don't know why this grabs a hold of so many kids, but time and time again, a child of divorce thinks it's their fault. Can I just tell you directly? I believe God sent me here today to tell somebody it is not your fault. Your parents are not divorced because of you. I don't, can't tell you all the reasons why they're divorced. I can't say it's dad's fault or mom's fault or both their faults or nobody's fault. I can tell you this it ain't your fault. You are not the reason why your parents are not. Together, number three thing I would say, if you're a child of divorce, honor your parents. Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother does not say honor your father and your mother when they get it right. It says honor your father and your mother. It doesn't say honor your father and your mother when they're worthy of honor. Because there's some parents in this generation that aren't worthy of a lot of honor. But God's word still says to honor your father and your mother. And so that's the obligation for children of divorce. As difficult as that may be, as hard as it may be, as messed up as your parents may or may not be, honor them. And that may be very difficult. You may have to pray that through. You may have, to, that may be a process and not a snap your fingers. I'm not saying you can walk out of here and, okay, I'm gonna honor daddy even though he hasn't called me in 12 years. Like, uh, this, I'm not saying it's simple, I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's God's best. It's God's plan that we would honor our parents. Number four, forgive your parents. Satan is the father of lies and he wants to wrap us up in bitterness and unforgiveness. it has been said many times and I think it's so true that that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. If you hate dad because he left or you hate mom because she cheated on dad or, or whatever the situation is, You're not really hurting them, you're hurting you. And Jesus took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our junk and he nailed it to the cross. He paid the price for my sin and he paid the price for your parents' sin. And I'm not here to to diminish the pain of what that, that mistake has made in your life. I'm not here to tell you, just snap your fingers and it's all okay. I know it's not. See, the thing about forgiveness is forgiveness is both a decision and a process. And so what I would challenge you to do today is, is to make the decision, I'm going to forgive my parents, and activate the process of forgiveness. It may take years. For some, it may take months. For some, maybe it'll come quickly. Make the decision and activate the process. Again, you've got to pray that through. You've got to seek God for that. It's a difficult thing many times, but it can be done. You can reach that point where you can forgive your parents. You can reach that point where you release them from, from the pain of what they have brought into your life. Start the process. And lastly, I would say this. Remember that God is the father to the fatherless. We serve a God of adoption. We serve a God who loves to to see the one who is neglected, the one who is ignored, the one who is alone, and say, I want you. You're on my team. Psalm 68.5 says that he is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. If your dad's not there, if your mom's not there, if your parents don't care, if if you're in a situation where it just hurts because you look around and somebody else has this this seemingly great set of parents, which by the way, if you got in their house, you might decide they're not that great. Uh, Sometimes the thing that we're jealous of is not that wonderful after all. Uh, but, But if you're in that situation, understand this. God does not forget you. He does not ignore you. He does not abandon you. I believe God has a special grace for children of divorce, which means he's a busy God. Thank God he's got all the time in the world. Cause in our generation, there's a whole ton of kids running around for divorce and he will love you. He will walk through the process with you. He will have grace for you in your pain and your abandonment. And he'll help you through the process. But it's possible for you to honor your parents. It's possible for you to forgive your parents and it's possible for you to learn from their mistakes. Um, Part of that, I think, is to go back and surround yourself with some wise counsel so that you can make some good decisions and not think that I'm gonna just do this all on my own. That's a great way to make some bad decisions. But you can enter into a marriage at one point in your life where you make a commitment before God, and I believe that that marriage can be healthy and successful. You don't have to be a person of divorce just because you're a child of divorce. God can have something better for you. You gotta trust him, you gotta obey him, amen? Amen, guys, let's pray as we wrap up today. Father, I thank you for... Your people, I thank you for your word. God, I know that these questions represent real hurt, real pain, real difficulty in people's lives. And so, Lord, we we ask you right now to to bring comfort to those who hurt. God, we ask you to to break bitterness and unforgiveness, Lord, for those who who have just a pain towards a parent who wasn't there or, or a pain towards someone who, spoke against an interracial relationship or or whatever that might look like. God, help them to to release the others of that debt, to say, you know what? God forgives me and I can forgive them. Help them to find your strength in that situation, God. We thank you so much for family. God, as messed up and jacked up as our American families are, God, you designed family to be a blessing. And so we ask you today, God, to bless those families represented. Lord, whether they're broken homes, whether they're blended homes, whether they're they're more ideal homes, whatever they look like, Lord, bless the families here and help us, God, to to be a blessing to our kids. Help us to be a blessing to those around us. God, help us to be who you've called us and created us to be. We thank you for what you're gonna do. In Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Quick question for you. If if you're here today and, and one of these things that we when these questions that we ask just registered with you with a pain in your life, or maybe when we we prayed earlier for for the person who's difficulty on Mother's Day, and and, and that's you. I just wanna pray for those who are hurting today. It's just what I feel like God's led me to do. I didn't plan on this, but it's just what I feel like God's spirit is leading today. So if you're in pain today related to one of these questions or divorce, questions of of interracial relationship, just Mother's Day in general, if you would, just, just slip up your hand. I wanna pray for you very quickly see your hands. Anybody else? That's me. I'm that hurting person today. Praise God. Praise God. Father God, you see these hands. You see these men, these women, Lord. You know their hurt so much better than I ever could. Lord, you know the number of hairs on their head. You know exactly what they're going through. And so right now, God, we just ask that your comfort, your Holy Spirit would touch them, God would comfort them, would speak to them, Lord, that they would walk out of here knowing that they are not alone, that they are not their own uh, on their own, God, but that you are with them, you are for them. And God, we thank you that you have healing power. And Lord, I just pray right now that that you would help us to come alongside them, God, as they identify themselves to to a friend, to a loved one here at church, Lord, that, that we could bear this burden with them, that they would not feel that they've got to do this just you and them, God, but they know that you gave them a church family too and that this church family would love to walk through these things with them. We thank you for what you're gonna do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. Guys, thank you for joining with us for today. Vince is going to come up here and we're going to answer one final question and then do a drawing. And then uh, if our parents want to go ahead and come down for our baby dedications and and hop up here with me, we will uh, get to that shortly. In fact, uh, yeah, if you guys can grab that, that would be awesome. Vince, you can read into the, oh yeah, you got a mic. Perfect. Go for it. Is it okay to date slash marry somebody who isn't saved? Okay, to date slash marry somebody who isn't saved. Awesome question, and this was actually in my notes, and I just missed hitting on it, so I'm glad that God covered my back on this one. Um, yeah, the answer is no. Um, the reason why God told them not to marry other nations around them. He said very clearly in Deuteronomy 7 verse 4, he said this is because they worship other gods and they're going to lead you to worship other gods. But the the Old Testament principle was if somebody moved into Israel and worshiped their God and lived by their rules to treat them as an Israelite. So it was never about race, it was never about color, it was never about ethnicity, it was never about culture, it was about religion it was about faith uh and so yeah young i don't care if you think well if i date them they'll come to church with me and maybe they'll get to know god and just don't i mean bible is clear 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 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers don't enter into a relationship with an unbeliever it's only going to lead you to a bad place so thank you